I literally was dry reaching when I walked past that pool because the stains of blood. Welcome to One Night in Bangkok. I'm Sav. I'm Charlie. And I'm MJ. And together, we're bringing you the crazy travel stories from around the world that never made it into the guidebooks. Cabin crew, prepare for takeoff. It's time for Ticket to Tell, where we give you a boarding pass to have a shot on the mic. Each week, we'll ask a question and share our favourite answers. What's the strangest law you've ever heard of from another country? In Poland, they banned Winnie the Pooh clothing around playgrounds and schools because their character isn't wearing pants. In the UK, it is illegal to shake or beat a rug into the street. You can shake a doormat, but it has to be before 8 in the morning. Hi guys, one of the um, fucked up laws from Switzerland is that you can't only own one guinea pig, you have to own two because it's against the law because only one will mean that the other one is lonely. So, grab your boarding pass and you too can get involved. Head to our Instagram at one night in BKK podcast. Slide into our DMs and send us a voice note of your answer to this question and you might feature in a future episode. Hello ladies, welcome back. This week we are talking all things law. Very serious stuff. Hmm, very serious. Mm, it is and it isn't though. I-, I think getting in trouble with the law is usually a good story. Like I don't think anyone really, unless they end up in like some Thai jail like Bridget Jones, they don't really regret it. It's still a good story. True? <laughs> Who ended up in a Thai jail? Bridget Jones in in the, in the Edge of Reason movie, the second one. I've never seen. She, and remember, she she I've sings Madonna. The first one. Oh, this is so tragic. So she basically ends up in a Thai jail for like smuggling drugs. She didn't though. She was carrying an ide- an object for someone else. Classic. She like, um, like, 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 yeah, she felt <laughs> <laughs> Actual, like actual. I think we've been she's actually before. carrying someone else. Did this film come out after Chappelle Corby did that? I can't remember. It is it is quite old. But, yeah, anyway, she's in Thailand and she's carrying this object with someone. They crack it open at the airport security. It's got all this white powder in it. And so she ends up in prison with these ladies and they're, like, obsessed with her bra because they don't really have bras in prison. So she's, like, they're, like, bartering for her bra and she teaches them how to sing Madonna and it's iconic. I'm sad for you that you haven't seen it. I'm sorry, but that does not sound like a realistic encounter of a Thai jail. <laughs> Well, it's, it's a Hollywood movie. Like it's that, it's not a doco. <laughs> um, we are talking Bridget Jones. Yeah, like okay. <laughs> my encounter with the law, I definitely regret it. Like I had to pay money. Like that was shit. It wasn't a good story. It was just shit. What happened? Tell us more. I just was. You guys are gonna hate me for this, but I was riding around on a scooter without a helmet on. And, yeah, I, I knew. I knew you guys were going to scold me for that. I knew. No, but we put it on. We laid it on yeah. when you said that. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I was riding around with, without a helmet on like an idiot and you should definitely wear your helmets, kids, because, yeah, you just should. You don't want to crack your head open. But, anyway, I got pulled over and they're like, where's your helmet? And I was like, I obviously am not wearing one, so it's at home. And they said, okay, you have to pay 200000 rupiah, which is about 20 bucks. Which isn't like I was gonna say, the isn't worst. Twenty dollars. Yeah, but when you're living there, <laughs> no, yeah, no. When you're living there, though, when you're getting down to your last bit of money, having to pay twenty bucks on a stupid mistake of your own for not wearing a helmet, 
It's like, just put a helmet on, mate. Like, stop trying to be so cool without your helmet. Mm. Yeah. Preach. Very, very, very important. Mm. What about you, Charlie? Um, <laughs> so when I did a snow season in Whistler, I rocked up like a week before Halloween and so excited. Like if, if, if you've never done Halloween in North America, like definitely add it to your list because it's so crazy, especially growing up in Australia. We don't really like get around it and it's so much fun, massive parties, exactly how you think of it as in like from the movies. And I was pumped, all dressed up and we were going out to like our first big house party and I was dressed as Dorothy, Wizard of Oz vibes, love that. Oh, cute. Um and we were walking through the village to get to this place. Like there's this famous street there. It's called Eagle Drive. And it's literally kind of like, oh, what's that movie? Um, Project X. Like that party on Project X is exactly like what all the house parties in Whistler are like. And they're all back to back on Eagle Drive. It's so much fun. It's crazy. Anyway. You've got to walk through the village to get to Eagle Drive. So me and my mates are walking through the village and we're drinking in the public, which isn't allowed. And we're having a few drinks and then these two people come up to me and they're dressed in like a police costume. And they're like, oh, you can't drink in public, blah, 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 like all this stuff. And I was like, oh, just because you've got a costume on doesn't mean like you can find me because they had like these yellow stripes down the side and anyone that's listening from Canada will be like their brains ticking now. They were actual police officers. I thought they were in costumes. <laughs> they weren't. And I was like, um. <laughs> no, I was like, you're right, mate. Good joke. <laughs> and they're like, no, we seriously are. And they showed me their badges. They're like, these are our uniforms <laughs> mortifying and I just ripped them apart being like oh yeah how's your yellow stripes and stuff like good one and then yeah obviously I had to pay the fine (laughs) how much is a fine I think it was like 60 Canadian dollars so it was like fine but I definitely from that moment on yeah Honestly, though, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Canadian police officer and you'll see what I mean. Like, for some reason, they really show off the colour yellow in their uniform and it's quite weird. I've never seen it before. Hmm. Definitely (laughs) looks like a costume. Sav? Mine is from my ill-fated Vietnam trip. Like, I went there for 10 days and I've already shared, like, two and a bit stories from there. But anyway... I was leaving Ho Chi Minh Airport and I'm really going to age myself now and people listen, like I feel sorry for people my sister's age, like she's 20 and they'll just never understand how good this was. But when you went overseas to, to Asia in particular, you would always come back with these fake DVDs, these like pirated DVDs in the plastic sleeves with the printed covers. Look, They look dodgy as fuck. Half the time they didn't work, but when they did work, it was amazing. So I would come back from these Bali trips and in this case Vietnam with like all these like before Netflix, before streaming, like it was quite hard to find US TV shows that weren't in Australia that you wanted to watch. So I'd come back with stacks of like seasons of my favourite shows and movies that I hadn't seen, like really quite new movies that hadn't been released in Australia yet, this kind of thing. I'm not I'm not saying you should do it. I'm saying that's what everybody did. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not condoning piracy. You wouldn't steal a car. You wouldn't. <laughs> oh, <laughs> <that> piracy ad. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, oh, I my God. Car, but I'd download one if I could. <laughs> <laughs> So why are you stealing DVDs? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, anyway, so I had, I can't even tell you how many, like 
so many, like a whole bag full almost. And I stupidly put them in my carry-on. So when I was leaving Ho Chi Minh to fly back to Melbourne, they obviously scanned it in the x-ray and picked up on it, pulled me aside and they were like, they pulled out like, I can't even tell you, like a giant stack. It wasn't like one or two. It was like <laughs> 50 of these DVDs. And they're like, these are illegal. And I was like, oh, are they? I had no idea. Like I, I bought them from the shop on the street because they were. There were shops everywhere that would openly sell them. It wasn't like a black market. Like it was like any other shop on the street. They like they were just like, quite sure common. these look so legit. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, remember laser jet printing where all the lines are on the, like so you yes, printed it and it's like yes. weird colouring and all the lines are on it. It was like that was quite clearly <laughs> fake DVDs. <laughs> I was like, I had no idea, officer or sir, whatever it was. He was like, look, this is a quite a large fine. I can't remember what it was, but same as what you said, MJ. Like I, in my mind at the time, I was thinking I was like 24. It seemed like a lot of money. It was like probably the equivalent of like 300 Australian dollars or something. Anyway, I literally was like, well, I'm leaving. I don't have any currency left. Like I've got – so I opened my wallet and showed them. I think I had like the equivalent of like 50 bucks. And they are like, yeah, we'll take it. And I was like, can I keep the DVDs? And they just looked at me and they were like – okay, you can keep the DVDs, get out of here. Like, go on, beat it, scram. <laughs> so I feel like oh paid the 50 bucks, obviously like a <laughs> fake bribe, fake like corruption collection. And then I just, I still got to keep the DVDs, which, but, but I think all the DVDs would have cost like $5. So they were expensive fakes, put it that way. MJ, your family did it the best. I remember as a kid going around to your house thinking like it was the like gold mine. Like you had just like, you know how like back in the day, like you'd have like those big folders for all your CDs and you would have them all in there like a big album and you could flick through. Like you had piles and piles of them for all your Bali DVDs and it was, oh, it was so good. I loved it. Yeah, we we actually still have all of them and like we've even got, I think we've got maybe like seven folders full of them. <laughs> can you get your mum to send pictures? I reckon so I could, on the yeah. Instagram for our listener that doesn't know what this is or can't relate. Do you know what I mean? I would yeah. love to get some pictures of the ones that you've got. That would be awesome. Yeah, every time we went back to Bali as well, mum would end up coming back with like a new folder like because each year we'd go back, she'd get like the upgraded folder because first it was just the one that you could just put the like DVDs in and then she got this one where you could actually put the cover in with the DVD as well, Ooh, which was pretty cool. Wow. That, was, that was very fancy. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were never short on movies or TV series or anything thing to watch there was always something anyway so I think we should get onto the stories because we have three absolute crackers today I'm really excited and actual like police encounters serious vibes so should we do it yeah, yeah let's go meet Camilla she found herself inside San Pedro prison in Bolivia and it's not for your standard reasons Camilla walked away with more than she came with and this is her story Hello, Camilla. Thank you so much for coming on One Night in Bangkok. Thanks for having me, Charlie. No worries at all. Stoked to have you and also really stoked because today you're going to take us inside San Pedro Prison in Bolivia, right? Sure am. I am so, so keen to hear about this. I've heard a little bit about it from my travels and mainly in South America and Central America, purely based mostly around the book Marching Powder. Would you agree with that? I had no idea about San Pedro prison until I read Marching Powder. In fact, I bought Marching Powder at the airport on my first trip to Latin America and just read briefly that it was about Bolivia and was like, oh yeah, this will do. Having no idea what it was going to be about or 
the journey I would take because of it. (laughs) Love that. And that's going to make more sense as the story kind of unfolds itself. But that's pretty crazy because it's quite a popular book. So I see Marching Powder as one of those like quote unquote travel books. I feel like if anyone's done a bit of a backpacking trip, you kind of find people in the hostel suggesting and recommending certain books from that area. And it seems to be like the trend and the popular thing to do. And everyone's like, have you read this? Have you read that? And I would say that Marching Powder is one of those books. So for you to pick it up at the airport without having that knowledge and just reading Bolivia... And then going down the kind of path it took you on. I feel like it's meant to be. Yeah, totally. It it was like literally as I walked into those little bookstore, news agency, lolly shop, you know, the shops at the airport that have everything. It was just like as I walked in and right there and I picked it up and yeah, Rusty was calling me. <laughs> <laughs> Rusty's the author. I'm correct in saying that yet. Yeah, Rusty Young is an Australian author who wrote Marching Powder and also Columbiano, a book about the guerrillas and paramilitary in Colombia. Also a really, really great story and a story that needs to be told and read. So yeah, definitely recommend both of those books. Very well written. I am going to add that to my reading list 100%. And so for the person listening, can you please explain a little bit of what March Powder, well, Marching Powder, I should say, sorry, is about? Yeah, so there was an English guy named Thomas McFadden who was arrested in the mid to late 90s for trying to smuggle cocaine out of Bolivia. He was arrested and detained in San Pedro prison. And this prison basically has its own economy. So you have to pay an entrance fee. You have to buy your own cell. There's no uniforms. The guards simply guard the outer area of the prison to make sure all the inmates stay inside unless they pay money to go outside, which is another <laughs> interesting part of it. And, you know, they have to pay for their own prison cells. There's different, you know, areas of the prison that are better quality and, you know, like the upmarket prison. And basically Thomas did tours and Rusty joined one of Thomas's tours of the prison. So that's how Thomas made his money. The tourists came in, paid him some money, and he took them on a tour of the prison. And during that tour, Rusty decided he was going to bribe the guards, the prison guards, to spend a few months in prison with Thomas, secretly recording their conversations for him to then write a book about the prison. Get me that book now vibes. (laughs) Crazy. Crazy. And so, so brave. Yes, so brave. My my understanding is that so Rusty was able to bribe the guards to come in and and Thomas being an inmate himself being able to run those tours for tourists. My understanding is that that was able to happen because the prisoners and inmates themselves are actually the ones that run the prison. Like am I correct in saying that? Yes, completely run the prison. They have their own, you know, president or whoever the leader of the prison who makes majority of the decisions and there's you know different rankings within there and they have their own rules and laws yeah they 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 completely run their own prison yeah because as I said I haven't read the book but what I have seen is uh, I think it's on Inside the World's Toughest Prisons on Netflix. I'm tr- I think that's the right one. Oh, if if I'm wrong, I'll need to correct myself in the show notes. 
<laughs> but essentially, there's a guy that does, he spends time inside a prison and experiences it for himself. And he actually goes to that prison. And so I've seen a documentary on it and it absolutely out of control. There is nothing like that in the entire world from my understanding. It's its own economy in there. So probably one of the most crazy parts about this is this is a male prison, but the inmates' wives and children live with them, mainly because they cannot afford to pay for a cell within the prison and a home outside of the prison. The wife and children can come and go, but yeah, they live in there, they have their own business in there. So whether that's, you know, running a restaurant, a cleaning business, real estate. So people own cells and rent them to people. Yeah, there's um, security. So, you know, people who run tours have security guards there. Like, it's just, I mean, I, I can't even tell you how many different types of businesses are in there. And obviously one of the big ones is the cocaine labs there. So the hell. And so everyone knows this is going on because like yeah. if you fuck with the inmates, you're done for <laughs> is the vibe I'm getting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my uh-huh. God. And so this Thomas guy, he does the tourist like tours around there. And is that mentioned in the book, I'm assuming? And that's kind of where you got triggered to be like, I think I want to go and check this out. Yeah. So <laughs> when I first started reading the book, I was like, this is crazy. I'm never going to Bolivia. This place yeah, nuts. How can this be allowed? And the more I read, I was like, okay, I need to go to Bolivia. And then I was like, okay, I need to go into the prison. And then I was like, I want to spend three months in the prison. <laughs> My partner at the time <laughs> was like, you are nuts. You can go, but you will not stay there. Um, but just the more I read, the more obs- obsessed I became with it and the more intrigued. And it just blew my mind that a place like this existed and I needed to see it for myself. I was also 22 years old, 23 years old and very naive. So, yeah, when I went in, it was I knew a, a lot about what was going on, but I sort of ignored any of the safety factors, I guess. I think mm, that I might Camilla, do you think that you'd probably still go now? <laughs> Look, I was there a couple of years ago and I asked about it. Unfortunately, the tours don't run anymore because of how dangerous it is now. Wow. There was um, a couple of girls who went in and were raped by prisoners. There was a couple of Aussie guys that went in, did their tour, went to leave and told the guards, okay, our tour's done. And they were like, no idea what you're talking about. You need to pay us an absorbent amount of money to leave the prison. (laughs) So they had to call home to their parents and be like, we're in prison, not because we did anything wrong, but because we paid to come in and have a look and now they won't let us out. <laughs> That's fucked up. That is so bad. Like, who, who pays to go to prison and then can't come out like that? It's like people usually do everything they can to avoid going there. <laughs> I just can't imagine the dread they had having to make that phone call home. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna tip that they didn't tell their parents that they were doing that before they had to call. Like I know I wouldn't. <laughs> so how did you organize it? Because that's what I really want to get to. You obviously went, and that's what I want to hear so much about. How did you organize this with Thomas? And who did you go with? Were you on your own? Yeah. So Thomas had left the prison by the time 
I got there. He left in early 2000s and I went in 2009. But his legacy continued and people continued to do tours and make money off tours. So I didn't meet anyone who got to go in before me, but everyone was like, you just go and you just hang around and someone will let you know when it's time to go in. So we got to La Paz and we were like, okay, put our bags down and let's go to prison. We sat around, like this prison is in the middle of La Paz city. Like there's this beautiful square across the road, people having lunch breaks, meeting friends, chatting. And then there's this prison that takes up a whole block of this area. We walked around and we were just, you know, looking and sussing the guards out who, you know, really didn't look at us too kindly. And then this guy pokes his head out from a top window of the prison. Um, his name was Sebastian and he was European. I can't remember. I think he was Swedish. I can't remember where he was from exactly, but he yelled out a phone number and told us to call him. So we went to the phone booth and called him and he was like, they're not letting any tourists in today. There's been journalists around the last few days. They're not letting anyone in. They're getting a bad rap. But if you want some cocaine, go and buy a loaf of bread, put some money in between some slices of bread, bring it to me, you know, because there's an area near the entrance where you can give the prisoners things like food or um, clothes and whatever. And he was like, and I'll, you know, throw a tennis ball over the fence with your cocaine. In it. <laughs> and we were like, oh, sounds very legit. <laughs> And I, of course, just trusted him. I was like, yeah, just give him all our money, this prisoner. <laughs> he needs it. I need him and he needs me. <laughs> the trust was like instant. I just knew he was my guy. So anyway, we went and bought a loaf of bread and we also bought like a few bags of lollies just to give him to hand out to the kids in there. Oh, nice. And we got to the, yeah. You know, got to think about the kids, cocaine and the kids. <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> um, so we went over to like the little gate to do the exchange and he was like, in now, in now, in now. We've got like a break. Like it was like hustle, hustle, hustle. We were like ushered through into this room. A couple of other tourists came in behind us and were shoved into this room. We had to fill out some entrance form, which had our name, our passport number, you know, where we were from where we were staying and we had to show our passport and pay I think the equivalent of 20 Aussie dollars and then yeah Sebastian came and got us he said we were super lucky that there hadn't been a tour for days and so he was pretty desperate for money at this stage and so then our tour began wow we were inside were you the wall my adrenaline was pumping so much because we had waited so long outside that we didn't think it was going to happen. Then to get in, I was more excited than anything. I forgot to be scared. And looking back, I should have been scared. You know, there was a reason there were guys that were standing either side of us as our security. Why were they the security? Like, why were they respected by every other prisoner? When you were writing your passport details down, did it ever cross your mind to put fake details or were they looking at your real passport? Like, were you a bit stressed? No writing that down you had to have your real passport with you and people had said that that you need to show identification when you go in so they checked our passport with the details but oh, no nah, I, I, I didn't I was like what are they going to do with my name and you know details 
So, Camilla, you get in. That's amazing. Like, I hear what you're saying. The adrenaline just kicks in and you kind of, it's just all happens so fast and you're in now. So, that's good. You've been, you've been put into prison. So, you've obviously got a loaf of bread. Were you kind of like, so now who do I give this bread to? Like, wh- where are we at with this? <laughs> So the tour begins and, like, people saw the bread and were asking for slices of bread. So I was like, okay, better take this money out of the loaf, chuck it in my pocket, and we're giving slices of bread out to prisoners because a lot of them haven't eaten for a while, are very poor, so they're, you know, living off minimal food because they can't afford to buy their food. So that loaf of bread was more valuable than, you know, the cocaine that was in the prison, basically. The kids were swarming us, grabbing lollies, like the bread was just going left, right and centre. I had a pack of ciggies on me. I was handing out ciggies to people. Like, you know, our security was like keeping people at bay, I guess. And no one was like too, you know, aggressive. No one was aggressive at all, actually, with us. They were just, people were really, really polite. And I guess that was a smart thing to do with us being tourists who had money and food. You know, everyone was just asking politely and you know, very hospitable, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on like your top 10 Welcome destination me. guide. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, like everyone welcomed us into their shops. We went into like one of the restaurants. They sat us down, treated us like queens and kings. So did like, you fully go to a restaurant in there? What did you have? Yeah, or, like some chicken in broth. Like I really didn't want to eat, but... It was polite, you know, to and to bring money into their community as well. Yeah. Which, I, you know, I have no idea what that man did to deserve to be in prison. I'm supporting his family. But at the end of the day, there's women and children there and they need to support. And also it should be known that anyone who has committed a crime such as child abuse or rape, they're killed basically immediately as they enter the prison. Wow. There's a pool in a pool it's more like an empty pool there's no water in it it's just the so the base of the pool and they put them in there they throw things at them beat them to death that was i literally was dry reaching when i walked past that pool because the stains of blood everywhere and you just know so many people have just been murdered and when you're reading the book you're like glad this person has abused children or raped women or raped men or you know these hideous crimes and you're glad that they're receiving some sort of punishment but it still doesn't make it easy to walk past that place where so many lives have ended no what what else did they take you around to see like what were some of the other shops or like what did the tour kind of entail yeah so it was just basically looking at you know we got to see a couple of cells different types of cells and some restaurants there was another guy who showed us he made things out of bits of metal he found and was selling them sort of, I don't know, souvenirs. They showed us their, um, you know, they had an area where they played pool, where they played soccer, where they did their laundry. Just basically the prison and their, you know, lifestyle in there sort of giving you an idea of what it's like to live in the prison. It was extremely run down and looked extremely uncomfortable even the cells that were shown to us that were considered to be of high quality you know looked dirty and uncomfortable and certainly not hygienic as well yeah I was gonna ask what's the higher end 
kind of look like. Do you know whether does the leader have their own cell? Like were you taught anything much about the leader, where they live and what their kind of purpose is or was it kind of a bit hush-hush in that regard? Yeah, no, there wasn't a lot of speak about that and I don't know if it was because they weren't allowed to. I didn't get a chance to ask a lot of questions. It was more, there was so much happening constantly that I was only asking about what was in front of me. There was no time to sit down and have a discussion. It was intense. Yeah, it sounds insane. What a crazy, like, obviously they're not doing it anymore, as you said. Like, what a insane life experience that you did there in that window where it was available. That's insane. I bet anyone that's read the book that's listening to this right now would just be like, holy fucking shit. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And also wondering if I got the cocaine. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask. I'm itching. (laughs) I'm itching. The bread's eaten. The money's in your pocket. You've seen the prison. Let's get to the good stuff. What happened? (laughs) So he was like, you know, basically implying it was coming to the end of the tour and thanking us. And I was like, when's he going to ask me? Like, you know, about. so I just was like, hey, Sebastian, you know, um, at what time do we do the exchange for the cocaine? And he sort of acted a bit shocked and was like, oh, um, you know, like, I don't really know. Like, took us into some guy's cell and was like, you have to wait here. The other people in our group hadn't read the book had no idea about the prisoner also were extremely overwhelmed and just wanted to get the hell out. And they basically said they don't want to be a part of any transaction. And um, we were... Just... <laughs> Look, I don't blame them. Like... <laughs> I was like, I did not come this far. And I was like, it's not my problem. You did not know about this. Who goes into a prison not knowing what they're going in for? Come on. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do think that's a bit weird. That's a bit scary. It's a bit like, obvi- like why no, are you just yeah. putting your hand up to go inside this corrupt prison when you have no idea what it's about? Like, isn't that a bit of a red flag to you and how you live your life? Like, <laughs> sort it out, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but, so yeah, eventually, leave? no, we, it, we either all stayed or all left. And then, you know, some of the other inmates got, word that I was looking for some stuff and they were really encouraging for everyone to stay saying it was safe blah 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 and then the transaction happened really quickly someone came back with a couple of grams told me shove it down my top handed over the money and then had to smuggle some cocaine out of a prison smuggle like I don't know I've got to ask are they even caring or checking like do they give a fuck like I'm pretty like (laughs) well I wasn't sure like I was like is this gonna be a way for the guards to get more money off me you know are they gonna search but no one no one batted an eye they you know they gave they did give us some looks like but no one asked any questions or anything they were just like okay goodbye please leave and leave the area don't talk to any journalists just get out of here so, no, it wasn't, it wasn't difficult at all. <laughs> Almost too easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, oh. it's designed for that. Part of the, the tours are designed for that purpose. There was also, back in the day, overnight tours. So tourists would go in and it was, they went in with the attention to party. 
So there'd be cells oh, wow. that would just turn into, they'd have like homemade alcohol and cocaine and they'd just stay up all night in the prison party. So the guards are well aware. The guards get paid good amounts of money to keep this economy do going. If, so. do, do, do you know if someone had a job as the DJ? <laughs> <laughs> No, but I should have offered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, I love Bolivia so much. It's one of my favourite countries, but Bolivian music is probably my least favourite music I've ever experienced. So I can't imagine anyone would be that excited about the Bolivian DJs in there. <laughs> Great honesty, Camilla. I commend you for that. <laughs> I have to ask, like, I can't let you go without asking, was it good cocaine? I have never, ever had anything like it in my life, and I never will again. It's known to be the best in South America, and it was the best. (laughs) Did you have it that night? Did you guys get out of the prison and you're like, right, let's go, let's party? We went straight back to the hostel and had a party and then the next day we took Sebastian a Whopper with cheese and a jumper to say thank you. <laughs> <laughs> like it was that good that you like, the money we gave them just was not enough. Like we need to give this man a Whopper and a jumper. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time we thought like the Whopper was like the best thing he could have. And let me tell you like his face when we handed that Whopper over was he was really, really happy. More happy than with that than the jumper, even though the jumper was much more necessary. <laughs> Look, who doesn't love a whopper? <laughs> <laughs> and Camilla, I've got to ask, we ask every guest that comes on the same question at the end of our chats. Looking back, do you have any advice that you wish you could have given yourself throughout the entire escapade? I wish I wrote everything down. There's a lot that I don't remember about it and I just was too busy with my purchase to go back and write down, you know, my experience and what I felt and all of those sorts of things because certainly the next day I was in no no rush to write my thoughts. But I, I think, you know, like although what I did is dangerous and I would, I definitely wouldn't do it now because of the situation there you know, uh, it was an experience and I would never change any one of my experiences. Meet Geo. She found herself at gunpoint in Frankfurt Airport after a suspicious item in her baggage showed up on the x-ray screen. And this is her story. Hello Geo. welcome to One Night in Bangkok. Hi, great to see you here. You are coming to us live from quarantine. How exciting. <laughs> live from a hotel room. Yay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for joining us. <laughs> I know you told me the bones of a story a few weeks ago, and so that's what we're here to talk about today. Do you want to set it up for us? Tell us where you were and what you were doing. Sure. I mean, it was a couple of years ago, so I was probably 16 17 max. So I was underage. That's the important fact of all the story. <laughs> I was at Frankfurt Airport. It was my first trip without my parents. So I only had like friends from school. So, you know, 
back going to Germany, Euro trip, the whole shebang. We were so excited, feeling like rock stars, you know, first trip with our parents, you know, you feel like you can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> the world's your oyster, literally, like, yeah. bring it on. Yeah, exactly. In Germany, where, well, almost everything is allowed as well. So we're in Frankfurt airport, you know, we checked in this huge group of friends, there are probably 20 of us, um, and one teacher, because a guy from school had to come with us to be the responsible person. Uh, Chaperone. Exactly. Like, go, you go. <laughs> Poor guy has seen it all after that. But um, so anyway, there we were, um, airport, packed in our bags, then uh, went to immigration. So that was all fine. Um, and then we went to the security gate. So now a few years ago, kids, um, you used to be <laughs> able to bring every single liquid that you wanted in your handbag, okay? So anything that you wanted to bring on your handbag was allowed back then. Um, so I went through security, you know, opened my bag, you know, with all my stuff. And then as I was packing my stuff back on in my bag, my friend passes through the security gate and this German police guy starts like talking to him like a, a bit of aggressive, but you know, it's Germany, so... You know, German just sounds aggressive. Normal. Anyway, exactly. <laughs> just another day in Germany. It's fine. So we're like talking, and I can see my friend is like absolutely blank. And bear in mind, we studied German for ten years now, but he could not understand what the guy was saying at all. At all, like, I was like <laughs> him, and me as a good friend that I am turned back and said, well, let me help him. Maybe my great German will, you know, come in handy this time. Save the day. You're yeah. like, this is my moment. I'm yeah. the time. It's my moment. <laughs> I'm the savior of the day. Let me handle this. <laughs> so this guy's like screams even more as he sees another person approaching him. It's like touching the screen, like screaming at the guy. And we're both like staring at each other like, what is going on? Like, I can't understand you. Like, what is going on? And then a mixture of German and English became in place. And we could not understand what he was saying. Then my third friend comes along as he was, um, he was passing through the security gate as well. So he, as me, tries to, you know, help my friend. So maybe I can help. Yeah, <laughs> we all thought we're all saviors today. <laughs> it's our moment to shine. We didn't learn German for that long just to do it. <laughs> this is our moment. <laughs> So you have to imagine like three teenagers, like, you know, staring at the guy like blank, like, I cannot understand you. Please help me. And, and probably the, the blanker that you look, the anger he's getting, because he obviously has some problem and he's trying to get a reaction out of you, but you're just staring at him. Where's the chaperone at this point? And did the chaperone speak German? Oh, the chaperone, he was German. So he was like far Not off. Cause, yeah, but he was like the first one to get out of the list. So he was like far off. Um, and we were... He'd already the, cleared and was... Yeah. In security, yeah. Yeah, he was like... I don't know what he was doing. He's probably in duty free. So <laughs> I was like, whatever. You He's guys. shopping. Yeah. yeah, he was shopping. Oh. And whilst we are like trying to understand what this guy was saying, this like 70 year old policeman, like trying to die, have a dialogue with like 17 year old, you know, Brazilian teenagers, which made it even worse. So, you know, as we are, he's screaming at us, we are like, what is going on? My, friend who is well he's really tall and really like 
muscle, like I would say, like quite like you know the bodyguard kind of type. <laughs> I would say he then <laughs> turns back around to grab I what I think it was his passport. So he basically like turns back as the guy sees that the guy just really draws a gun and point at us. <laughs> and I was like, yep, this is the day that I die. Bye. Oh, my God. So this, this police officer's pulled a gun on three 16-year-olds? Yeah, pretty much. Oh, my God. I mean, we've done stuff in life, but, like, hey, we're in no danger, right? Like, <laughs> I know when you say the fact that you're Brazilian, something sounds a bit off. Hey. <laughs> and the guy just... Oh my god! Pulls a gun at us, and we're like, "What do we do? What do we do?" It's just like, and he keeps like repeating this word in German, which basically means like, um, "Get out!" Like, get um, to the floor, basically. And we're like, "Okay, (laughs) that I can understand." Floor it is. I have to imagine these three teenagers completely like scared, and like, this is the moment that we die on the floor, on the ground, like stare at each other like what do we do oh my god man like what do we do so so he must have thought that your friend reaching for his passport was reaching for a weapon i can only assume i don't know what other assumption is there well later on we then know uh we then got to know that he thought exactly that the guy was reaching for a gun and he draw the gun first so yeah that was slightly bit scary um Oh my god! And do we? And did you ever find out what was actually in? Like, what was the issue in the first place? So, <laughs> I guess that's like the funniest part of the story. So back then, there were not a lot of products that would be imported to Brazil, and one of them was Nutella. So Nutella never reached Brazil, so, and we loved Nutella. So my friend sneaked in <laughs> a, a pot of Nutella in his backpack, but it was over a hundred mLs. So he couldn't get it. He was just trying to say that the Nutella is like over 100 ml, sir. You cannot carry that on your handbag. Oh, oh my God. And after being like thrown to the ground, being pointed a gun at the guys, then came like the security guards, the police or whatever. Then they come to us saying like, okay, you have to like leave now. And I'm like, what do you mean leave? We're trying. (laughs) (laughs) Believe me, I've been trying to leave this country. (laughs) (laughs) And then he escorts us to what I, I'm going to call a holding cell or whatever that means. Like an interrogation room. Yeah, it's like an interrogation room. And then Mm. I I think they just wanted to scare us off, but they kept us there. But scare you off what? From transporting a teller across the world? Like what? You didn't even do anything. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Maybe the teleexportation was like, I don't know, uh, you know, illegal. Maybe I'll get arrested. It's a drug, you know. I mean, look, Nutella is pretty good and it is addictive. So maybe it's just a class C drug and that's the issue. I mean, would you not have almost got a bullet in your head just for Nutella? I would. (laughs) I mean, if there was one thing in my life (laughs) that I would have got a gun at, would be Nutella. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I could go some Nutella right now, actually, just thinking about it. It's Mm -hmm. been so long. Can you get it in Brazil now? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Now it's like super popular. They caught up. 
Yeah, yeah. they caught up. They <laughs> caught up. Maybe it was this incident that actually made Nutella <laughs> come to Brazil. You know? like, right, this is not worth it. Just get the Nutella here. Yeah, it's like, fine. Some teenagers try to do it. And so was there any discussion or like mention of the fact that you're all chill? They've basically interrogated three children with no parents present yeah that's pretty <laughs> no, much no it. Sh- fucks given or no not really like you're basically after 16 you're actually a, almost like an adult in germany so for them it was oh, like that's true they can drink and everything at 16 can't they so you guys are like you guys are adults so who cares just you know we're just gonna interrogate you but it was pretty i mean it was scary now i laugh about it but like when you know, 10 years, 15 years ago, I was like, done. <laughs> I was like, I'm never traveling again. <laughs> I'm not doing this. <laughs> you evil Germans. <laughs> oh, my God. So looking back, what advice would you give yourself? I don't know. I don't I think ma- don't. you don't really do anything here. No one did anything no. wrong. But I feel any like- advice? Just don't help your friends. Like, let them go. <laughs> don't help anyone. Every man for himself. <laughs> just keep on walking. Yes. Just do what the chaperone did. Don't turn around. Just keep the straight line. Go keep to the duty free. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> just go to the duty free. <laughs> I think that's like maybe the best advice we've had. Just don't help your friends. Yeah, just don't help anyone. Every man for himself, like, just go do your thing and don't try to be the saver of the day because you're not. <laughs> Meet Lucy. She thought she was signing up for a luxe season in Magaluf, working at a bar with her cousin, with their own epic villa and all. But something just wasn't quite right about it. And this is her story. Hello, Lucy. Thanks so much for coming on One Night in Bangkok. How are you? Hello, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for asking. Stoked to have you on. Well, today we're talking all about arrests and crime and a bit of a mix of everything. And when you reached out and you told me your little tale, I was like, oh my God, what the fuck? Like one, only you, which I guess only anyone that knows you will understand that. So, but it's just fucking hilarious. Can you set the scene? Who were you with and what were you doing? Basically in like the UK, there's certain destinations that you go to after you finish school for like your end of school girls or guys holiday. So we chose somewhere called Magaluf, which is basically, it's one of these places which is super cheap. Uh, The alcohol is like disgusting, fake stuff imported from like Poland and it's got a strip and everyone's like 17, 18, 19 or there's like stag do's, hen do's, you know, that kind of vibe, just like Bogan yeah. is the only way I can think in Australia <laughs> is to describe it. Like it is horrible. I just love that you use the word Bogan though. Like a lot of, we have listeners from around the world, but a lot of our listeners come from Australia and I feel like it, they'll just howl at hearing a Scottish person use the word Bogan to be Bogan, honestly, my favourite term. It's like the equivalent of maybe a chav, but like country chav, like, I don't know. It's just one of my favourite words that I've taken from Australia. Is it in the, <laughs> is it in the dictionary? <laughs> or is it slang? Is. Or I, I, I would say it's slang. It's, well, like, I would say it's slang, but to be fair, I wouldn't be surprised if it made it in the dictionary. Well, I've got to look go, that up. It should go in because it is such a good describing word for someone. 
We and have something similar. So we call our schoolies. So we would usually go up to the Gold Coast and yes. that same thing. When we finish year 12, we go and we spend a week up there and it's the exact same thing. You've got your main strip. It's fucking trash. Like, yeah. I, I know <laughs> what you mean me. about, yeah, I know what you mean about the fake alcohol as well. Like a lot of the clubs have got like free shots on entry, but you have the shot and it's like, Juice? Like syrup, yeah. It's like something that's oh, and it's like bright green or bright yellow or something. Yeah. Actually disgusting. <laughs> that is Magaluf. That is Magaluf. So right. you've got the head. You've got the picture in your head now of what it's like. So I'd went there for my girl's holiday, and the following year later, my cousin, who is a year younger than me, went out for her girl's holiday. So she was out there with her friends and she had met some people out there and she basically said that she'd wanted to stay. Now, bear in mind, my cousin's like 17, 18 at this point, so she's pretty young to be deciding to just stay in Magaluf to do a season. But anyway, I was told by my family that she was staying, so I should go over and uh, spend some time with her. So went over to meet her and she had basically already made friends with these people in a bar that she was working at so she was working at this bar called Willie's actually and oh my just, god that's already so classic <laughs> so this bar was like a horrible old man's bar and it was like wooden inside and it was just at the bottom of this hill and it was just so far away and it was just weird and um were you concerned when you rocked up were you like what are you doing are you okay yeah I had no I had no indication of what was yet to happen she hadn't set the scene for me at all where I was staying or anything she just kind of said I've met these people I work in this bar and we're staying in a villa so I was like oh great a villa that sounds good um, yeah, it sounds awesome, to be honest. And yeah. I've got to say, sorry, Lucy, I'm going to cut in because the funniest thing is, so obviously, as I said, we do schoolies, but we also have a term if you go back the second year and it's called toolies. So if you're if you're actually doing it the year afterwards, you're called a toolie because yeah, you're too old. tragic. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you were is. like doing the equivalent of the UK toolie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how embarrassing. How embarrassing. Can't believe I'm telling Here everyone about this. <laughs> Here for it, though. Love just, it. I'm just going to justify it by saying I was being the big cousin and going to check yeah. on her. But I really wasn't. I was, going, I was going over to get smashed with her for a few weeks. But, yeah. So, <laughs> we, we went, I went over and she had met this guy called Tommy and this guy called Frankie and a girl called Amy and Demi. So Amy and Demi were two absolutely crazy Scottish girls from the West Coast. Um, and there was also two other girls called Katie and Carla who were two crazy Irish people. So they were kind of her group of friends. And then the two guys that she was with, one of them was called Frankie and he was probably four foot. Um, <laughs> he was so small and it, he was like 36. He'd been on EastEnders, which is like like neighbours almost, kind of like that, but more tragic. He'd been on like shows like that. And she also met a tree surgeon, that was his job, called Tommy, but he had no neck. So it was just very strange, the whole thing. We had Frankie, the four-foot guy. We had Tommy Nonek. And then we had two crazy Scottish girls and two crazy Irish girls. I'm talking crazy. (laughs) So pitch up. How long had Frankie been there for? Because if he's 36, like, had he been there too long, do you think? Like, was he living a different, like, alter ego life? I honestly, I think he was there to... 
market things. He was kind of a marketing guy in Magaluf, like for all the like pubs and stuff. And like, because he was so short, he would do like shows and things, and it was meant to be funny. It was just all very strange. Um, yeah, that's a bit. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> So I rock up in this bus from the airport to, to this bar called Willie's and we get taken up to the villa that they've been staying at. So Millie was like, it's really, really strange. Like, there's nothing in it. There's loads of empty bedrooms. But, like, it's fine. So I was like, okay, cool. Walked up the hill, saw this huge villa. It looked really nice from the outside. And um, walked in and it was me, Amy, Demi, Millie, Katie and Carla all in one room just on mattresses in the middle of the room on the floor and nothing else. That was one of like, there was something like 15 rooms on it and it was like crazy. So there was no keys to this place. So the doors didn't lock. No one had keys. You just wander in and out. There was no safes to put your stuff. Like there was one bathroom that like one plugged worked in, one plug worked in, like things like that. It was just really, really, really strange. So very red flag. So when I got there, I was like, oh God, like, I'm so glad my mum doesn't know I'm staying here because she would be freaking out. (laughs) And Millie had kind of, was kind of like, you know, giving me a tour of the like house and everything. She was like, so basically there's nowhere safe to keep our stuff and there's no keys. So basically we've cut a hole in the mattress. So put all your stuff in here. And I was like, that is the oldest trick in the book. Looking back now, if we were going to get robbed, they would look in the mattresses. If there's nothing else in the house, like, so like there's us being like, yeah, yeah, we'll keep like our passports and money in there. And it's just like looking back and like, that was so stupid. Like, yeah. We would have gone straight for the mattress. There was nothing else in there. There's no chairs, no tables. Like, it was just weird. That's so fucked up. Yeah, so that was, you know, it was just like that for a bit. We'd just go about our day, go out at night, come back, all just sleep in this, like, open house, which was weird. There was a downstairs to a basement, which was, like, derelict. Looked like no one had lived in it, but there was, like, dusty chairs and stuff. It was just really weird. And, yeah, lived in it for, like, a few days, and it was fine. And then kind of noticed this car circling around the apartment. And it was really, really weird and stuff. And it kept happening every single day. So we just kind of ignored it for a bit. But we'd actually gone to the beach and met some people that had been there in the season from like, because the season starts in May. So they'd been there since May. And they had asked us, you know, where are you living and things and all this. So we told them and they were like, you live on the villa at the top of the hill. And we were like, yes. And they were like, that villa was all over the front page of the Palma newspaper at the start of the season. It's a massive drug base, basically. And we were oh like, my God. what? Like, so confused. We were like, okay, we need to find out who we're like, letting this off, who's organised this, like, so confused. So we went back and it turns out that I can't really remember the story because obviously this was so long ago, but there was basically someone who'd subletted it to someone who was subletting it to someone who was subletting it to someone who was subletting it to someone. So it had gone down like <laughs> four sublets and then it got to us. So we were like the fifth people. So the owner of this villa had no idea who was in his apartment. Like he lived somewhere else. He owned this villa and lived somewhere else. Oh my And then... Um, Yeah, so we were all just like, okay, this is getting really, really weird, like really scary. We were obviously freaking out about this car as well. So we're like, we're not going to go out tonight. We'll just stay in the villa and see like if this car comes back, what the situation is and stuff. So we 
all stayed in and basically the car came back and it was circling and it was circling and it was circling. So someone went down because there was like so many people in this villa at this time. I didn't know everyone. I just knew the people that were in my room. Uh, someone went down to the Willie's bar, actually, to ask if they knew who the car was. And the guy had said that he'd seen them circling for ages. So basically, the big man at Willie's bar was getting frustrated and decided to go over to the car and be like, look, what, what's the deal here? So the guy just never said anything, left, didn't come back for, like, just didn't come back again. So that was fine, carried on as, as normal, we're going out, going to the beach, all this. And then literally, like, it must have been in the afternoon and I think we were working, someone had come down to the bar from the villa basically saying that we needed to get out and that the police were going to raid this place in like the next half an hour so we sprint up this hill to get all our stuff and everything gather everything so quickly all of us running down the hill back with our suitcases and as we're running down the hill all these police cars start flying past with their sirens on and go into this villa with like guns and like everything like it was crazy and obviously oh like god. 17 year old and 18 year old us are just watching this like oh my god we've been sleeping in there for like the past two weeks and basically living in a targeted drug base that god knows who else was in there like god knows so i'm calling my mum basically obviously not telling her any of this just saying that the villa was double booked and uh, we <laughs> double had to booked leave. by the mafia yeah double booked <laughs> by the mafia <laughs> literally actually quadruple booked by the mafia so yeah. four times <laughs> so like all these like british like drunks basically and then oh my god so call my mum my mum was obviously like a bit like oh for fuck's sake like what am I going to do? So spent four and a half hours looking around Magaluf on the phone, on the internet, because obviously it was peak season. So she couldn't find us an apartment room anywhere. And uh, she finally, after four and a half hours of us just sitting, waiting for somewhere to go, she booked us this hotel room. But there was obviously not only me and Millie, but our friend Amy and Demi from Scotland, who had nowhere to stay. So they had to come into this tiny box apartment room that we were in that had two beds and one fan. And, like, I ended up sleeping on the marble floor because I was that hot. Like, it was just so bad. (laughs) But to this day, my mum does not know any details of this story. Like, it's probably, actually, one of the craziest things that I've just escaped. Because if I'd been in there and they'd come in, I like, would would we have been arrested? Would we have been, like... Taken hostage? Like, what would have happened? You really don't know. That like, is so fucked honestly. up. Like, that is so scary. I did. I didn't even know this. You've never even told me this. <laughs> Do you know when something is like happened so long ago that you kind of leaves your mind because you're almost in like a state of shock from it? Yeah, that's kind of what happened. But it was just like the craziest thing I think at that age that had happened to me. Like I'd never seen someone being raided with guns and stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, I mean I don't think most people have it. It's not yeah. like it's normal. <laughs> just watching it from the bottom of the hill like oh my god oh did you ever find out who or what or any details after the raid or was it kind of absolutely nothing we flew home because (laughs) i was like i was scared like we were gonna get arrested or found out or something i was like i need to go i'm pretty sure actually my cousin stayed um but i was like i need to get the fuck out here i am done 
done with Magaluf and I've never been back since. <laughs> <laughs> but I can tell you, if I went back, and that, if that villa is still standing there, if I went back to Magaluf, I could tell you exactly where it is, what right up to it. Like, I can remember everything about the villa and the surroundings itself. I think it was just, you know when you get a gut instinct, but you yeah. don't know what the instinct is at that time? Yeah. I knew that there was something dodgy going on in this villa, but you just, you're obviously young, stupid and vulnerable at that age as well. So like, you just <laughs> yeah. think you're invincible. Also, they'll just, yeah, turn a blind eye, exactly like yeah. no one's going to harm me. But I know what you mean. I'm pretty sure most people would get a bit of a gut instinct going in there when it's like, you have to hide your shit inside this mattress. The mattress. <laughs> And, like, we thought it was, like, really, like, smart that we decided to hide it in the mattress and stuff. Like, no one will check. And, like, of course <laughs> they will. There was nothing in the fucking villa. It's the only place they would check. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for sharing, Lucy. We That's ask okay. all our guests the same question at the end of every chat. Looking back, what advice do you wish you could have given yourself? Don't listen to your younger cousin. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she hears this. <laughs> Make your own accommodation. <laughs> Don't go to Magaluf ever. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much advice. It's like, where yeah. did I begin? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, the advice that I would give my younger self would be go with your gut instinct and when something doesn't fucking feel right, it's not right. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of One Night in Bangkok. If you have a crazy travel story, tell us about it. You can send us an email, tell us at one night in bkk.com or hit us up on Instagram at one night in BKK podcast. This podcast was born from our shared love of travel and everything it adds to our lives. Until next time, we'll leave you with a snippet of how travel has changed you. It hardens you up a bit. I think psychologically and emotionally, it toughens you up a bit. So it's a huge change but yeah I learned a lot I, I reckon I was a different person to be honest